I'm Benjamin Wittes, Editor-in-Chief of Lawfare. And I'm Susan Hennessy, Managing Editor of Lawfare. You're listening to Rational Security on the ER podcast feed. For more of our columns and exclusive Lawfare content, read us at foreignpolicy.com. I feel like there's a really rich territory of appointing name puns now. I'm wearing my Ray-Bans. Yeah, he's... I'm pretending I'm a Democratic senator. Yeah, he's quite been, was quite the ray of sunshine this week at that hearing. Some were hoping for a ray of hope. That's it. That's all the puns. I don't have any others. What about like, um, radiant? Oh, he was radiant. Radiant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Anyway, we have 10 years to figure it out, so we'll <laughs> but, come up with something. But as good. I'll talk about on the show, the Democrats' radar was not all that good. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Ray of Sunshine edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal, here in a bright, sunray-filled jungle studio with Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy. Hey, Shane. Hi, guys. No, Tammy. T- Tammy's out, like, soaking up the rays someplace Tammy else. is in the region. The region. Uh, as they call it. As She's in Jordan. It. Oh, was it in Mississippi? No. No, not her region. Not her region. But we have a special guest here visiting from the deep state who has also spent a lot of time in the region. Oh, yeah. An unnamed... An unnamed no deep voice, stater, just shadowy, sitting exactly. in the back. Say hi, though, deep state visitor. You, you can wait. Just yeah. leaking information. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the torrent, a flood of information. If you're listening, Sean Hannity, this deep stater is here to leak us information. I mean, I've never even seen that classification marking. <laughs> Amazing. It's just a frowny face. <laughs> just a frowny face. It's like the grumpy sticker with the put on poison bottles, the yuck sticker. It's like this information is bad. They had to make a new one for Trump just that simplified it a little bit instead so we'll, of like the no foreign. We will periodically ask our deep state visitor whether he can confirm or deny things and, 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 and he'll nod or shake his head as appropriate. Wink once for yes. This week on the podcast, the Senate questions FBI Director nominee Christopher Ray. Not the architect. There's an architect. Name? That would yes. be Christopher Wren. Oh, Christopher Wren. Oh. oh, the failed joke. On no, my no good God. pun jokes on Wren. Oh, I thought you know oh, it's not. There's God. like Wren it's of like Sunshine doesn't work. Wren mm. bands doesn't happen. No, we're much better off with Christopher yeah. Ray. It's a we'll good talk. thing we have Chris Ray as our nominee. Thank God. Oh, thank you for linguists everywhere bringing some much needed humor into Washington. Uh, Democrats file suit against the Trump campaign over leaked emails, and the UAE is reportedly behind a cyber attack that led to <laughs> upheaval in the Gulf region. Uh, let's start with the Ray nomination hearing, uh, which uh, was I think just a week ago. We were recording last week on the morning of the hearing, so we didn't talk about it. Um, ben, you had a piece in Lawfare in which you asked, I think you listed 20 questions that you wanted to see the Senate ask Christopher Ray, and you wanted him to answer so how many did they ask and, and what were his answers? So I, I didn't I didn't actually go back and count specifically how many were asked. Certainly some of them were, uh, particularly the questions related to, uh, you know, have you been asked for loyalty uh, pledges? You know, what would you do if you were, uh, you know, 
if there were improper interference from at the political level with an investigation. But I was actually surprised at how few of them were asked, and specifically uh, uh, the, some of the ones that I'm really most was most committed to uh, as a yeah, sort of precondition for confirming anybody. I would really want to know um, why you think, as the nominee, you're capable of being effective in that role, given what happened to your predecessor. And, you know, it's a little bit, um, you know, this is a situation in which uh, Ray's predecessor is uh, comes into office and is immediately the subject of direct political lobbying on investigative matters by the president of the United States. And when he does not comply with the wishes across a range of stuff, but particularly related to investigations that directly affect the personal interests of the president, he is summarily fired in a humiliating fashion. And so my my question that I don't really think anybody got to with Ray is like, first of all, why do you want this job under those circumstances? What 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 you know, what's the vision that you have of the FBI's function and why do you think you can do it? Why do you think, you know, what basis do you have to think that the president shares that vision and that set of aspirations for the Bureau's behavior and, and conduct and future? And why are you confident that you will not be one day while you're giving a speech to FBI agents in some field office learn from the television that you've been removed because you've behaved decently. And I, I've been – was really quite surprised at how um, how uninterested in that basic dilemma, uh, particularly the Democrats on the committee were. I thought they were they were sort of weirdly normalizing the situation. What's your explanation for that? Like why do you think that they didn't press him on what seemed like the obvious questions beyond just the did he ask for loyalty, which anyone would have asked? So I – you know, honestly, I don't know. I, I think maybe the psychological – the psychological situation is they know the guy is going to be confirmed. And let's be honest, he should be confirmed. He's – he's, uh, you know – uh, he's not, in my opinion, in the same league as Bob Mueller or Jim Comey, but he's a serious guy. He's got a serious law enforcement history. Uh, there's no, no, I know nothing really disparaging about him. Uh, and he's run the criminal division. He's clearly qualified in any formal sense. The FBI needs Senate confirmed leadership, so he should be confirmed. And maybe under those circumstances, if you're a senator, uh, you don't have an incentive to uh, begin a relationship with the FBI director by smacking him in the face very hard. And it would be one thing if you could actually force an, uh, the appointment of a nominee closer to your liking. But this guy's the best you're going to do. And so maybe you have an incentive to work with him. That said, I was really surprised by it. I thought the Senate Judiciary Committee, with a, ve a very small number of modest exceptions, did not 
shroud itself in glory the other day and um, and really stood in sharp contrast to the Senate Intelligence Committee, which, uh, you know, in every hearing that it has had in a, at least a somewhat bipartisan fashion has shown itself to be taking pretty seriously the challenges in front of it. So I was surprised by it and disappointed. And frankly, I spent that morning live blogging it. If I had known how little interesting was going to happen, I wouldn't have bothered. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I there there were sort of a number of questions that I, I think they didn't ask the most interesting questions. I don't have an explanation on why they didn't push right. I don't really have an explanation on why the Democrats have allowed sort of the Comey thing to blow over the way it has. I mean, this is a enormous presidential scandal. I mean, just they, they sort of have, have ceded it to, well, you know, Mueller investigating obstruction of justice, I guess that's the end of it, as though they don't have sort of a really powerful role to play in in preserving the norms that they themselves set out to create. So I think there are, there are two questions that I'm was most interested in and didn't really hear a satisfactory answer to, although in candor, about 45 minutes in, 30 minutes in, I just turned it off because I didn't think it was all that interesting. The first was Ben's final of the 20 questions, which is, why do you want to be FBI director? Mm-hmm. Um, it may seem like sort of a like a, a, like a petty question or, you know, right, like a, like a chance for him to give a dig at, at Trump, but it's not. It's actually, you know, there were a lot of really, really smart, thoughtful people who were considered for this position and wrestled with it. And 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 it was not an easy uh, answer for them, what they would say if they were asked. I mean, these are, this is a, this is a hard decision. And, and look, you are suspect by virtue of your nomination by Trump. He removed a director that he believed to be too independent. The person he appoints, that is his way of saying he doesn't think that person has the same deficiencies that he saw in the mm. predecessor, namely, investigative and political independence. So, okay. so I, I think it's sort of it was it was a <clears throat> moment for Ray to one explain his personal thinking, his sense of public service. There are plenty of good answers for why you would want to serve under these conditions. But just there there wasn't anything that sort of probed that part of it. I, I thought it was a missed opportunity really. So uh, along those lines and when keeping into account as you said that Trump appointed this person presumably <laughs> because he thinks well, I mean, I don't know if we can see inside the president's mind, but one might ponder the possibility that Trump thinks that Christopher Ray will somehow be more pliable or less likely to go hard on Russia. Uh, who knows? Maybe he didn't think about it at all. But in terms of let's take the Russia investigation and put aside the, you know, the multitude of other things that the FBI director is responsible for and that he will be responsible for for the next decade, presuming he's confirmed. What do you all expect him to do with regards to the investigation? I mean, is it and what can he and what and what should he be doing as the FBI director where things stand now? Well, he should be doing, I think, probably nothing. Um, the investigation, both as a as an investigative matter and as a prosecutorial matter, is the province of, of Mueller. Um, and uh, the. The FBI's role in the investigation at this point should be merely to provide the investigative resources, not to conduct the investigation, uh, you know. Um, so, I, I mean, I think part of the answer to the question, why would you take this job under these circumstances, 
may be the answer. Part of the reasonable answer may be because the stuff that was really irritating the president is no longer part of the purview of the job. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, I expect to be able to keep my head down in a way that Jim Comey was not. That, of course, is an incomplete answer because, you know, there are these other things that come up in the life of an FBI director uh, that the president may care about. And so if you if you take the Russia investigation as and Trump's conduct within it as a example of a class of behaviors and rather than as a discrete problem in and of itself only, which of course it is a discrete problem in and of itself, but it also reflects a way of engaging with law enforcement. And some of us are not confident that I mean, I mean, I know many rational security listeners are fully confident of this, but I am personally not confident that we have exhausted the list of things from this administration that will require investigation and that might not, you know, that there may be some new ones that come up over time that aren't encompassed in the Russia investigation. I mean, like in terms of, of the question of just broader independence or uh, or independence and courage on issues that are going to be uncomfortable for the Trump administration or in which sort of there's likely to arise pressure. I did think there were some negative signs from uh, from Ray during the hearing. So the first was, you know, Grassley sort of opens up with this very strange attack on Deputy Director uh, Andrew McCabe. Um, Grassley had actually written a series of letters beforehand. This appears to be like a, like a real pet issue. Issue. Um, you know, Ray didn't really take the opportunity to defend McCabe's service or, uh, you know, thank him for leading the agency in this very, very difficult period of time. Or, right, he he didn't sort of take that moment to to stand behind the FBI rank and file. He kind of punted and awkwardly shifted there. Then the other was whenever he was directly asked about this Trump Jr. meeting, uh, the news of which broke that morning, or the, I think the morning before. My timeline's a little bit off. Um, uh, and, you know, shockingly, uh, he hadn't read any newspapers the day before. Like, he just, you know, he's been in a cave. He hadn't heard anything. Um, and then, well, he couldn't really comment on whether or not someone would uh, should contact the FBI, uh, you know, because he'd only sort of heard of reports, you know, prompting this actually pretty funny exchange with Lindsey Graham. Yeah, Lindsey Graham kind Graham. of browbeat him into it and he sort said, of told him what answer he wanted right? I mean, to he his said, question. Pal, you're going to be the FBI director. Tell us to call the FBI, at which point Ray sort of, you know, begrudgingly says, yeah, you should have called the FBI. You know, but that's a moment. I'm sorry. That's not a hard question for the FBI director to answer. If you're contacted by people purporting to be the Russian government or Russian government lawyers uh, while you're running a political campaign, should you take that meeting or should you call the FBI? This is not like a, a real stumper. And the fact that even there he wasn't willing to sort of you know, give the the moderate but reasonable and and clearly correct answer. It, those are like early signs of of a little bit of a lack of the kind of constitution and fortitude that we know we are going to need from an FBI director so, over the next four or eight years. So I actually want to defend him on that. I I with I I I'm not the biggest fan of Chris Ray. I'm not a foe either, but. But I, I, I do think that question in the context of a nomination in which there's a pending investigation and the pending investigation has a special prosecutor and you're not read in and there are breaking news stories, uh, the proper thing to do in that situation is not to comment. 
and um, and I know it's awkward, and it always gives rise to somebody saying and feeling exactly the way you feel about it and are talking about it. But I really would not want an FBI director walking in having commented on matters that are pending and that have already been removed from the normal Justice Department process. I think the right situation in that is to say, that's clearly a matter of active investigation. I'm not going to talk about it, rather than to pretend he'd, he'd never heard anything about it. It just should, But I think the instinct to keep your mouth shut about that is probably a pretty good one. So I don't disagree with that, but I think there is a right way and a wrong way to not answer that question. And I didn't that's think fair. we saw a right answer, not answer the right way, which is which is exactly the way you, you say, to just take it on its face and say, look, that's clearly an investigation investigative matter and it's not appropriate for me to weigh in on it he 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 sort of punted and and that was just it, it was not a good moment for him so it wasn't I, reassuring. F- funny story on no commenting i was uh at kenyon college about a year ago a little little more than a year ago in may or something um and uh comey was giving a speech this was back when he was you know fbi director and there was this little thing the clinton email stuff he was giving a speech at kenyon college uh and he, uh, the f- one of the first questions from the audience was, so can you tell us where you are with the Clinton email <laughs> investigation? And he just looks out and he says, yeah, I'm really going to answer that question. <laughs> and the whole, the whole audience kind of broke up. Um, so I think like actually the way to not answer a question is just to announce that you're not an- going to answer right. a question, you know, and just to be really direct about it. Um, I mean, maybe the guy just hates reading newspapers. <laughs> no, TV, never heard of it. Uh, that Don Jr.? That recommends him for a senior job in the But government. I don't know that guy. But all, all in all, I do want to say, I thought Ray did pretty well. And this is an incredibly difficult environment in which to be a nominee for this position. And I think, you know, with the caveats that Susan rightly gives, he basically came off as a reasonable person who's committed to the independence of the law enforcement function. He said a lot of things that I, you know, I think would be well received in the building. Uh, um, and, and I think people are, to the extent that people were reassured by his presentation, I don't think that's wrong. Uh, last very quick question, uh, presuming he's confirmed. Uh, what do you think? How many votes does he get? A lot. I mean, I don't I don't view it. I mean, Artie Feinstein, Klobuchar, others have come out and said they don't oppose the nomination. It's clearly going to happen. I, I don't maybe there's some sort of symbolic people who will hold out, but I don't I think it sails through, you know, significantly. I agree with that. And it may be, you know, you may achieve something close to unanimity, which would be, uh, I think, a very bad thing, actually, because it would send a a, a, a powerful message of normalization. One place that he will not sail through is the J. Edgar Hoover building uh, uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue, um, where he can expect a, a chilly reception, frankly. And, um, you know, the FBI is a vertically integrated paramilitary organization and people do what they're told. But uh, he's going to have a real management challenge walking in there um, because uh, the circumstances of his appointment 
uh, even if they are lost on the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, are not going to be lost on the rank and file of the Bureau. And, and frankly, one of the most significant choices I'd imagine that he's going to make in terms of how he's going to run the Bureau, but also what the message he's going to send to the rank and file is the decision on whether or not to retain Deputy Director McCabe. This is a very, very different circumstance. And so some of those ordinary assumptions don't apply. And, and he wasn't pushed at all on questions about those sort of staffing choices, what sort of message he wanted to send to the rank and file. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think it is actually worth particularly giving, given the smear campaign that right wing uh, media and Charles Grassley have been on about McCabe. Uh, I think it is, it's actually worth, you know, saying a few words about Andrew McCabe. I mean, so unlike Comey, McCabe is not somebody I know personally. And I, you know, I'm not, there's no element of, of this that's, you know, my, you know, friendship or whatever. Um, this is somebody who's behaved with enormous class and courage over the last few months. And, you know, within the week of the Comey firing, when the White House was putting out lies about Jim, McCabe went up to the Hill and, uh, you know, had the temerity to tell the truth. And which is that there was no FBI dysfunction or uh, upset at Jim Comey and that he was an admired and remains a very admired figure within the Bureau. And uh, that's what's driving the attacks on Andrew McCabe right now, which is that he contradicted the White House, you know, that week in public. Um, and I just think we should remember that that's what this is really about. Okay, um, two Democratic Party donors and a former party staff member have filed a really interesting lawsuit alleging invasion of privacy against the Trump campaign and Roger Stone, who is a longtime advisor to the president and uh, self-proclaimed dirty trickster. Uh, it accuses these parties of conspiring in the release of the hacked Democratic emails and files that exposed their personal information to the public. That's according to Charlie Savage in the New York Times. Uh, and the case was organized by a group called Protect Democracy. Um, ben, I want to get your initial take on the novelty of this particular lawsuit. It struck me as an extremely creative, uh, maybe even clever uh, uh, approach to what seems to be designed a lawsuit to enter into the discovery phase of litigation so that there is effectively, if we want to think of it this way, maybe you'll correct me if I'm wrong, a an investigation into the hacking of the DNC and the leaking of emails that is now being conducted in the judiciary while there are ones going on in the legislative and the executive branches. A complete set. So the whole set, collect them all. The whole gang. So full disclosure, United to Protect Democracy, which filed this suit, also represents me and Susan on a few FOIA matters. And uh, one of the attorneys in particular, uh, Justin Florence, is somebody who I've worked pretty closely with. Um, that said, I, I think the lawsuit is actually more than clever. I think it is an extremely careful and serious effort to solve a lot of problems that have arisen in certain Trump litigation uh, cases to date. So let me tick through the problems that it solves. First of all, um, there's no standing problem 
with this lawsuit. So the plaintiffs are actually people whose emails and personal information was stolen by the Russians and disseminated by WikiLeaks. So, and they have real claims that they suffered uh, significant uh, consequences as a result of this. So, you know, the standard for standing or the preliminary standard is injury in fact. There's just no doubt there's injury in fact here. And that's different. They were embarrassed and, I mean, at work. And, I mean, in one case, I think one person was even outed. One was outed, you know, outed to his family. I mean, these are serious consequences. And these are not public figures. So there's demonstrable. And that makes it very different if you think about the, for example, the emoluments litigation where there's a real threshold question about are, uh, are the entities that are suing, are, do they have standing, right? There's a standing issue in some, in a lot of the, uh, travel ban litigation as well. Uh, here you're not going to get hung up on that. Secondly, um, I am not in any sense an expert on either civil conspiracy litigations or, uh, DC privacy tort law. But the legal theory here is pretty clean. Um, and, you know, the legal theory is basically the Russians stole this material. The Trump campaign uh, and Roger Stone conspired with them to, to, to do that and leak it. And we suffered privacy injuries as a result of that. And that's these, the kind of case that, you know, courts hear. Um, uh, the third thing is, and this is a really clever thing, the temptation in this situation is always to name the president as a defendant because that's what this is really about. But then you get into the whole question of presidential immunity. And so they were very disciplined in their choice of, of, of defendants and they chose the Trump campaign and Roger Stone. And that actually, if you think about the history of the story, it actually gets you between those two entities, it gets you to an enormous amount of the conduct about which we're really concerned. And then the final element, which uh, uh, is just a function of the way the thing is pled, this document is 46 pages long, and it mentions everything. I mean, it mentions Trump's tax returns. It mentions, you know, business ties, longstanding business ties between Russians and the Russian entities in question and individuals. It names dozens of people, uh, individuals. All of that sets up potential discovery. And so I look at this and I say it's likely to survive a motion to dismiss. And it's a freaking gold mine of discovery for for plaintiffs, for journalists, for congressional investigators, uh, and it's a for that exact reason a potential real headache for the Trump people. I wrote on Lawfare yesterday. Think of it like Paula Jones, only not about a discreet um, sexual harassment incident. Think about it as Paula Jones about everything. Can, can I just say, so as a matter for, for Susan Chemsen on this, just, I don't know if this is a kind of a procedural thing, but okay, so they have standing, but the allegation here is that the Trump campaign and Roger Stone conspired with WikiLeaks and the Russians, or it's, it's, it's the mega conspiracy, right? Mm-hmm. Don't they have to prove that? Or is the discovery process aimed at proving that? No, the standard for the motion to dismiss is that you assume in the light most favorable to the non-pleading okay. party. You right? have to so assume the facts true okay. for purposes of – and then you get – And then you get discovery. discovery and then you get to find dis- out. Okay, gotcha. Right. All right. At the end of discovery, you have a motion for summary judgment, which says – 
you know, you've had all this stuff and you can't, you can't prove your allegations, therefore you lose. Um, and if you survive a motion to, for summary judgment, then you go to either a jury or a bench trial. So then on how it's maybe done. I'm being overly cynical here and I don't want to judge the motives of, of these people. Why should, why wouldn't a reasonable person then look at this and say, this isn't remotely designed to prove a conspiracy. This is just designed to dig up dirt on the president. Well, because, because that's the way, like, that's the structure of these types of cases, right? You, you make your allegation and then discovery is to see if you can prove the allegation. So, um, but do they these really not, think they're going to be able to prove this allegation? I, I think they, they on information and belief really do believe that there was a conspiracy, really do believe that, that Roger Stone and, and members of the Trump campaign took substantial steps in, in the furtherance of this act and that their clients were harmed. And so I, I don't know if they, I don't know if they believe believe they're going to win, right, if they're going to be able to get enough information. Although, frankly, the Donald Trump Jr. emails might change things. And they I did kind of land right as they were bringing yes. this, drafting the I mean, literally the, the day before, they, they do make it into the complaint, but it's pretty know, extraordinary most time, lawyers yeah. wouldn't imagine that somebody would write like, I love it, especially if you do it this way. So who knows? But the answer to your question, Shane, is that because as a lawyer, you're ethically bound to represent the interests of your clients. Mm. And so the question is, the, 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 you know, if it is in the interest of the clients to settle this case uh, on the basis of, you know, something other than having proved terrible things, then, then you're, you, you need to do that. Um, if, on the other hand, the client's desire is, you know, these guys did something awful to me, I want I want to use this litigation as a way of exposing what they did. That's actually a legitimate client objective, I think. I, I, you know, I, uh, and maybe the answer to that is, uh, I think the, to know the answer to that, you really have to understand, which is and should be attorney-client protected, what the understanding is between the attorneys and, and, and the people they're representing. But, you know, it's perfectly legitimate to have a litigation objective that is principally to expose what you believe to be wrongdoing. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things here is as we start to see more and more information like the Donald Trump Jr. emails coming out, um, there are going to be a lot of really, really interesting uh, civil cases. And so one of the one of the things that they decided not to pursue here was um, conspiracy charges under a, a conspiracy complaint under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which does have a civil provision that they could have used and they decided not to. Um, Helen Murillo and I wrote a piece on this. Actually, we drafted it and then this like perfect lawsuit sort of dropped to, to, to illustrate the idea. But the way the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act works is um, you, if you want to be held as a, as a conspirator, uh, you know, to sort of to hacking, which is actually uh, a misdemeanor offense, you have to sort of be involved in the entire scheme from the get-go. But there is actually a separate offense within the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is a hacking scheme in order to violate the Constitution, state tort law, uh, state criminal law. There's sort of this set of uh, these set of uh, other things that other aims you might have been having, and, and if you do that, then it's a, it's a felony offense, and courts treat that as actually a separate offense for the purposes of the statute. That means it's possible for somebody to hack the DNC. That that to be a fully completed crime, then someone else to get involved in the distribution, which, by the way, this case is proceeding on a state tort theory, an invasion of privacy, in a way that theoretically 
makes them involved and culpable for the entire computer fraud and abuse conspiracy. So there are lots of, I mean, these are all complex legal theories, but these are not, like, these are not sort of joke or, or reach things. There's the little pieces of information that come out, especially sort of from people like Stone, especially as we see congressional testimony being given under oath. I, I think there might be a lot of fodder for these things to move forward. I agree with that. And I will point out that it dovetails in a very interesting way with a story uh, written by one Shane Harris in the Wall Street that Journal. Um, look, if I had been the lawyer filing this lawsuit... I might have named a third defendant, and that is the entity that one Peter Smith set up um, to, I am, Peter Smith is dead and uh, dead people, you know, can't be sued. But I, if there is some continuing uh, corporate entity that uh, he set up uh, in order to conduct the operation that you described in those stories, that would be a very interesting defendant for a suit like this uh, to the extent that it would facilitate discovery against, for example, uh, everybody named in those stories to find out what mm. their actual relationship with that operation was. Anybody wants to do that, please go ahead. <laughs> Just let me know when it's you do. Easily reachable. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter. Um, all right, let's move on to our final story. Um, very interesting story that broke on Sunday night in the Washington Post uh, from Karen DeYoung and Ellen Nakashima that the United Arab Emirates orchestrated the hacking of Qatari government news and social media sites in order to post incendiary false quotes attributed to Qatar's emir in late May, uh, they write, and that this sparked the ongoing upheaval between Qatar <clears throat> and its neighbors. Um, sources of intelligence officials became aware last week that new information gathered by the United States confirmed that on May 23rd, senior members of the UAE government discussed this plan and its implementation. It's still not clear, according to the story, whether the UAE actually carried out the hacks or had someone else do them, uh, but the false reports that were posted said that the emir, among other things, had called Iran a, quote, Islamic power and had praised Hamas. And these hacks and postings took place on May 24th, not long after President Trump uh, had a lengthy counterterrorism meeting with Gulf leaders in neighboring Saudi Arabia and declared that they were all unified. Um, there's so many things going on in this story, but let's kind of just attack briefly here the hacking component of it, because one of the things I sort of wrestled with in this story is... Uh, was this hack really that effective insofar as people actually believe the emir said these things and it triggered this conflagration? Or was this just a very easy excuse for people to do something that they, uh, for these nations to do something that they wanted to do in isolating Qatar, which we've talked about on the podcast uh, before? Regardless, the, you know, also is, is the, the idea of, False information and fake leads sort of dropping into the news stream, as you like, was something that certainly resonated with me uh, as a journalist. But Ben, what do you think? Well, I mean, it uh, it actually reminds me a little bit of the um, uh, the you know at the time the Germans invaded Poland, uh, they actually you know set up this pretextual. Uh, fake Polish attack on some German soldiers, uh, in order to provide the, the casus belli for, for, uh, for, for that. And, you know, I, I I'm, it's, I, I suspect that it's important, uh, in a political environment in which you're trying to hold, uh, you know, 
get a group of countries to gang up on one country to have some little trigger that that uh, credibly or not provides the basis for that, right? And and I um, that said, I think it's uh, you know really disturbing for a lot of reasons, and uh, here are three. One is because uh, attack on the integrity of the news of news product. Uh, in an environment in which we're all a little bit concerned about fake news, some of us sincerely and some of us not sincerely, uh, actually producing an international conflict on the basis of fake news is a, is a pretty disturbing thing. Uh, secondly, doing it as a function of a covert intelligence operation in which you're actually altering real news, right? Um, and it, that's a, you know, that's, only one step further than what the Russians did in our electoral system. And so there's a, a clear relationship. Um, and the third is because if this were done by a truly professional group of intelligence services, it would be done well. And Ellen Nakashima and Karen DeYoung wouldn't know about it yet. And it wouldn't be guttery news services. It would be, you know, your newspaper or the New York Times. And, you know, if you imagine, um, if you imagine a professional intelligence service, uh, altering, altering a real news story on a highly reputable news site in a, in a subtle fashion and it taking a few hours in order for that to, uh, be fixed, uh, and for it to be noticed, you could imagine some really bad things happening in those few hours. So I, I think it's disturbing for a lot of reasons. And, uh, you know, if, if Tamara were here, she would actually have something uh, coherent and interesting and useful to say about the uh, intergulf, intra-gulf dynamics that led to this. But I think just the, the hacking story itself is a really interesting and upsetting uh, development. Right. And it's not occurring in isolation. So the UAE's ambassador's emails were hacked. Those have been sort of shopped around to journalists. I mean, mm -hmm. this this really is becoming sort of a, a playbook, especially being sort of fused with the insertion of fake information. The other thing that is, I think, a little bit of a warning here is um, the risk of having uh, powerful political leaders using social media to communicate with the public. Um, so we've talked about it before, but the importance of sort of securing Donald Trump's Twitter account. You know, Ben sort of, uh, you know, gave the hypothetical of the Wall Street Journal getting hacked. Um, I can almost guarantee, based on the information we've seen, that the Wall Street Journal's Twitter account uh, and its its servers are better secured than Donald Trump's Twitter account. Like, uh, um, the opportunities for mischief, some of which might be incredibly consequential, are just limitless here. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I have not seen anyone really, really taking that seriously. It's really kind of amazing, actually, that we haven't seen, and I, mean, I could fault myself for this too, being a national security reporter, more reporting on how the president uses his phone and the security on that device. I mean, I may have missed it, but I'm not aware of much investigation that's been done into that 
There was originally quite a bit of sort of investigate, investigation into the fact that he continues to use like his his you know old uh, Samsung phone. He's not uh, like that. He clearly was not adhering to Secret Service protocol. Mm. That whenever they got him a new phone, he had secretly given his old phone number to friends so they could continue to contact him. Like he, he just doesn't appear to be taking operational security yeah. seriously at all. Um. Tammy, if she were here, would have a lot more eloquent things to say about the intergulf politics as Ben said. But I'll just say a, a couple of words real quick on sort of the Saudi relationship with the White House, because it's something I've been reporting <laughs> on with some colleagues of mine uh, in the region. And what's fascinating is this: there is clearly a budding relationship between Mohammed bin Salman, who is the crown prince, and I think some people believe will be king in could be in fairly short order uh and another uh uh, 30 something princeling <laughs> apple of his father or father-in-law's eye as the case may be which is jared kushner and we've talked a lot about on the podcast about um what a ray of sunshine <laughs> we've talked about rex tillerson's frustrations and i think it's probably not an overstatement to say that many people would think that jared kushner is effectively acting as the secretary of state at least in you know, operating a number of very important relationships that we do have with other world powers, one of which is undoubtedly Saudi Arabia. Um, that can't be divorced from the context of all of this, I think. And there's going to be a lot of interesting information, I think, coming out about the nature of the relationship <clears throat> between this White House and the Saudi court, uh, which will raise a lot of questions, too, about, you know, the president's statements around Qatar and you know, things that may have preceded uh, this upheaval in the region. Um, that's a, I'll just say that's a space to watch. You might dun, even dun, say dun. tick, tick, tick. You might even. You might even. Um, all right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I'll go first with mine because Ben's is so good. I have a quote. A quote that leads to where does it come from and then leads to something else. I'll read you the quote. <laughs> I'm inspired by Ben's reading of Hamilton, but this isn't as long. Um Quote, it is harder than ever to know where reality stops and fantasy begins. When, time after time, the incredible proves to be fact, it's quite an achievement for something to remain incredible. The borders of fantasy keep receding as fantasy is overtaken by reality. You might say that it applies to now. Yeah. What is it? That is Elizabeth Drew writing in Washington uh, in Journal. Washington Journal. <clears throat> September 8th, 1973. Which that, is actually it's when a fabulous book. It's it's a fabulous book, and I it's I'm sure many people have have read it. It is certainly not going to be new or news to people because Elizabeth Drew is actually coming out and talking a lot about this. But um, I actually want to recommend the book for a particular reason, and it's not so much to try and force the Watergate parallels uh, in terms of alleged crimes, conspiracy, whatever. Although I think you can do that. But what I'm reading it now and finding so fascinating is. And the whole point of Drew writing this book was so that people would remember, they, they used to think 40 years from now, what it was like then, is they are completely lost in the maelstrom of the moment. Up is down, down is up, no one knows what shoe is going to drop. It is absolutely breathless, nonstop. Um, 
they are stunned by the revelations. They don't know where they're going. They're asking all of these huge questions about, well, I mean, the way, we don't even get to the question about the fate of the president until much later. And, to, and I think it's very useful to go back, especially for reporters, and realize that in that moment, it was great confusion, um, uh, uh, that the best you could do was sort of take it day to day, take each story by itself. You couldn't actually think that far ahead because you were always going to be surprised. It really reveals the limits of imagination in some ways to think of what's going to happen. And that feels so much like the moment that we've been in around the Russia controversy. Um, and I just, I found that just fascinating. I mean, it's almost the, the atmospherics of that moment. She could have been writing today. So highly recommend it. Washington Journal. It's a great kind of day by day account. It's a unique book in that respect. Um, uh, uh, also go back and listen to the BBC's Alistair Cook letters from America, where they've, ca- they've actually rebroadcast the three or four around the final days of Nixon. And truly, if you took the dates out and took the names, you might think somebody was writing about this just crazy moment that we're living in. Ben. Wow. So um, back in the fall of uh, 2015, uh, I rather impetuously uh, challenged Vladimir Putin to a <laughs> fist fight. Um, Seems and, like so long ago. Um, yeah, and I... <laughs> oh, uh, those innocent days. Yeah, and, you know, I've been waiting ever since uh, for word from the Kremlin. Um, you know, the... Maybe the, that's why they hacked the election. Yeah, because they were upset yeah. about the... Uh-huh. I mean, look, and the, the, the challenge was meant in all seriousness, that I think he's a fraud martial artist who's using his, uh, his uh, macho... Uh, uh, prowess uh, and myths thereof to um, both as part of his domestic legitimation uh, and uh, and I think in that sense it's quite connected to a lot of very ugly Russian policies for example toward the LGBT community this sort of really kind of macho presidential persona it's also related to his international uh, sort of uh, menacing of the countries around him. And so I've always thought just sort of puncturing it as a, as a, revealing it as a myth, uh, was a, just sort of a good, healthy, uh, dose of, of bully mocking. And so, um, uh, this morning, rather to my surprise, uh, they did not contact me before they did this. The Washington Post did a lengthy news story uh, <laughs> under the headline, Is Vladimir Putin a Judo Fraud?, which uh, is largely about my martial arts challenge to Putin. I'm not exactly sure why it's uh, important today. Um, and um, concludes... Um, you know, and goes through the reasons why I did it and that, that I've been, you know, plaintively waiting ever since for the Kremlin to get in touch. Uh, and it concludes with the following quotation from me. Putin needs to either fight this reasonably well-trained but not especially expert middle-aged desk worker in a situation in which I'm actually allowed to win without fear of reprisal or he should face condemnation worldwide as a wuss and a phony. A truly strong leader does not need to stage displays using lackeys subject to his power. So I want to reiterate, in light of the Washington Post's uh, discovery of this challenge, uh, I will fight Putin anytime, 
any place he cannot have me arrested after he takes an independent drug test. I've had to add that latest uh, criteria <laughs> Uh, in recent months because of, uh, you know, revelations about Soviet, uh, Russian doping. And by the way, anybody who, uh, wants to see an incredible movie on that subject, uh, should watch the movie Icarus, uh, which is, uh, now making the rounds and is really, really stunning. So, Vlad, I'm here. I'm ready. I'm waiting for you. Bring it on. And on behalf of Tamara Kaufman Wittes, just thank you to the Washington Post for encouraging this <laughs> even further. And while I just, she's out of town. I know she sends her sincere gratitude. Yeah, this is exactly what she wanted to come home to. All right, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive on our webpage. You can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You could suggest places on Twitter where Ben and Putin might have their judo match. We could lay odds on it. Um, the prediction market. We have to, depend, we have to pick a place where I we can mean, legally lay off. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's just got to be Seychelles. That's a very profitable place. It's got to be somewhere. I mean, it's obviously got to be somewhere with a big venue because yeah. it's this is going to be hot. But right, it's the thrill um, in Manila. Look, all these issues are workable. You know, the moment the Kremlin decides that this is something that needs to happen, I, I'm sure we can figure the rest out. When you download the podcast from Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher, please leave us a five-star rating and review. You can write notes to Ben about Putin in the reviews, too, but please do that for us. It's a big help, and we appreciate everyone who's done that uh, to date. Our audio engineer this week, filling in for Quinta Dressick, is Matt Kahn. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Our music was performed this week by Christopher and the Ravens. Ooh, right, that's nice. That's Doesn't nice. it sound like a like a Britpop '60s tribute band? Like yeah. they'd have like little mopsy wigs. He has great hair. I mean, he can I think do we it. Make it Chrissy, Chrissy and the Ravens. <laughs> I'm not sure you appreciate that. That's a little more like you know, like modern pop, whatever. Um, Sophia Yan, I think, would probably approve of Christopher and the Ravens, and since she actually does our music, mm-hmm. we're going to give that to, to her. Keep her happy. Indeed, indeed. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittis and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>